pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy today. Lord, thank you that your mercies are new every day, Lord. Thank you for the fact that you remind us of uh, your great faithfulness to us. And, and, and truly, Lord, you are faithful. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we have your word and you've given us, Lord, uh, such a great and abundant revelation. Lord, help us to discern uh, the teaching of Scripture properly and, and uh, help us to be in awe, Lord, of your great redemptive story, Lord. And, um, and uh, most of all, help us to be in awe of you. Because you're the author, you're you're the author behind the story. It's your plan. It's your uh, story that's unfolding before our very eyes in Scripture. So we thank you for that. Bless our time. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as you can see, I've written up some things here on the board that I thought were important, and we'll get to um, we'll get to be talking about some of these gentlemen up here that I put up on the board. Uh, these are just some. Some of the well-known biblical theologians that I kind of would want, uh, people that are, you know, serious about studying biblical theology, I mean, these are the men you have to interact with. That is certainly, you know, a good place to start, and we'll talk about that. But um, as promised, last week we kind of just did kind of a cursory overview of why biblical theology is important, so we kind of looked at the why of biblical theology today. Um, and we, we talked a little bit about the what as well, but today we're going to spend our entire time uh, talking about the what of biblical theology. What is it and uh, what does it consist of? I guess that's, that's the most important uh, part of it all is what does it consist of. Uh, let me just remind us again of when we talk about biblical theology, uh, we are talking about uh, tracing God's story throughout Scripture. I mean, that's basically, uh, we're approaching the Bible as, um, my wife hates the word story because she's a real literalist, you know. She's like, it's not a story, it's fact, you know. That, that kind of, so that if that's in your mind, I'm sympathetic to that to an extent because I'm going to use the word story, so sorry. But you know what I mean. When I say the word story, I mean nothing less than the absolute historical narrative of Scripture uh, based on real uh, time and space events. That transpired on planet Earth. Okay, is that literal <laughs> enough for you guys? <laughs> right, but that, but that is what it is. And um, it's amazing to me that God did it this way, is it not? I mean, uh, God did not give us, uh, let's be honest, I mean, God did not give us a textbook uh, on philosophy. Uh, he didn't give, or oh, some would challenge that, but uh, you know, um, in terms of just the character of the Bible, he didn't give us a textbook on philosophy. He also didn't didn't give us a textbook on systematic theology. It's not the kind of book that you can open up. Okay, turn to the doctrine of Christology, and there's a chapter and verse, and that's the one that handles that. No, no, no. no. Uh, systematic theology uh, exists because we have to we have to do systematic theology from historical narrative, from apocalyptic literature from poetic literature, from history, from didactic literature, from parabolic literature. We have to go to all the genres of scripture in order to inform whatever doctrine, you know, that we're talking about. Um, I wanted to read um, what Voss called uh, dramatic interest, because what he's saying is that the Bible is extremely unique in the way that it presents itself and uh, I don't have any better words than his. And so let me just read to you uh, this quote. And we're going to go slow. Uh, I'm not in a rush if we don't finish this lesson. 
I'm not, I'm not in a rush necessarily to get to the next step. Uh, I just, what I'm in a rush in is to get to to understand it. So we'll take as long as it takes, you know. But this is what he says. He says, I should mention as a desirable fruit of the study of biblical theology, the new life and freshness that it gives to the old truth. And I think what he's talking about there mainly is Old, old Testament. Right? He says, showing it in all of its historic vividness and reality with the dew of the morning of revelation upon its opening leaves. It is certainly not without significance that God has embodied the contents of revelation, not in a dogmatic system. Dogmatic is an old term for, like, doctrinal. Okay? Um, he says, but in a book of history, the parallel to which in dramatic interest and simple eloquence is nowhere to be found. In other words, you guys understand that the Quran is nothing like this. Right? That the, the Hindu Vedas are nothing like this. That there is no other book on earth like this one. That this book is completely unique in, um, in the way that it unfolds. I mean, strikingly unique. Uh, I was just uh, doing devotions this morning out of First Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. And guess what they all are? <clears throat> genealogies <laughs> nine chapters of this person begat this person this person. nine chapters you're like what are you doing your devotions out of that for <laughs> and i thought well i'm doing my devotions out of that because i believe that when i read the genealogies uh god is presenting those genealogies for for my good right like those genealogies have to have some value in my christian life or why are they in scripture and as i started looking at the genealogies i thought wow so amazing that if you're a Jew and you're studying the Old Testament and you're going to the genealogies, guess, guess where the genealogies begin, by the way, in Chronicles? Guess where they begin? Is that a trick question? Adam! Adam. <laughs> wow! So, I mean, aren't the people of God far enough removed from, right, that they just, just give us like the immediate genealogies, like in the last couple hundred years, to our life. What do we got to go back to Adam for? Well, you have to go back to Adam in order to remember God's redemptive plan and his unfolding story and how we went from Adam to Seth, from Seth to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David. You see what I'm saying? And uh, anyway, so I found those uh, genealogies really edifying. So um, don't be afraid of those genealogies, okay? <laughs> the power of story is important because within the passages of Scripture, you have innumerable subplots to the great overarching plot of God's grand redemptive story. That's what it is. Um, again, let me read to you uh, what Gerhardus Voss said in a different place. He said, biblical interpretation is necessarily historical work. So in other words, if you're going to study the Bible, if you're going to look to do hermeneutics, if you're going to look to interpret the Bible, you are engaged in historical work. You become a historian, like it or not. Right, The exegete, among other things, is a historian. This is meant not only in the sense that the biblical documents have a historical origin and background to be investigated, but also in the sense that their subject matter is historical. In other words, the history of the Bible is not just the backdrop of the Bible. Right? Okay, so here's the history, and then sort of, you know, uh, uh, we have to, okay, acknowledge the history, but then after we acknowledge the history, then we get to the good stuff. What Voss is saying is, no, 
the history is the revelation of God. See what I'm saying? And so he says, all involved in careful study of scripture, the academic theologian, the pastor preparing to preach and teach, any believer intensely occupied with the text need to remain aware of the historical dimensions of their task. That's absolutely right. Um, if you think about some of the, um, if you think about scripture and, and you start racking your brain with what it is, what are some of the stories? Let's, let's talk about some of the stories, right? Uh, as we, we think about the great story, the meta narrative of scripture, but what are some of the subplots in the scriptures themselves? Anyone? 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 Noah. Okay. So, you have the story of Noah. What a massive story. <laughs> you know, and I mean that in so many different ways. We'll get to Noah. Anybody else? The Exodus. The Exodus. The Exodus. Anybody else? Sinai. Sinai. Well, the Exodus. Okay, that's a subplot. All right? Well, if you like, Jonathan. Okay? Let's go to uh, Sinai. Okay? Well, anybody else? The Fall. The Fall. That's right. The Fall. I mean... Creation to recreation. Okay, well, you're getting a bit sophisticated there, so I'll just put... <laughs> I hang out with you a lot. <laughs> I'll just put creation, okay? I'm not going to give you that much credit yet. Okay. Yeah, the story of creation. Anybody else? Time of the Judges. What's that? Time of the Judges. The time of the Judges. Okay. So what I'm saying is that all of these subplots contribute to the overall story uh, kind of like coat hangers. Okay, don't make fun of me. That's a coat hanger, right? I could do better than that. Come on, right? They just kind of hang on the redemptive, um, you know, what's this called? Timeline. 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 No, the metaphor. Follow the metaphor. Hanger. Coat hangers, the... Uh, coat rod. Coat rod. Coat rod? Rack? Oh, man, we're in trouble. <laughs> don't become a dry cleaner anytime soon, okay? So, but you can see all these stories are what? They are all part of something greater. You see that? That's important for us to understand so that when we do the study of Noah, we have to know, in terms of the overarching story of God, where does Noah's story fit in? Right? And furthermore, let's say this is Noah's story right here. Furthermore, what is hanging on the story of Noah? And what is hanging on that? You see what I'm saying? This is the way biblical theology works. Um, you know, somewhere down the line here, as you study Noah, you're going to get to places like First Peter. That's going to tell us explicitly that Noah had something to do with Christ. Right? So, that's why biblical stories are so important. It's not just to remember... You know, they're not just Sunday school stories to show, you know, kids how to color in their Sunday school material, right, a big boat. Uh, they're to show us, ultimately, uh, what redemptive historical significance does the story of Noah have in the overarching plot of God. Uh, that's what biblical theology is really all about. Um, another biblical theologian by the name of Richard Gaffin he says the notion has to be avoided that the historical character of the Bible must somehow be overcome before we have the truth for today. Does that kind of <clears throat> resonate with any of us? It is no more the case that the, listen to this carefully, 
it is no more the case that the Bible is true in spite of or apart from its historical qualification than it is the case that the death of Christ is efficacious in spite of its historicity. That's how you get to liberalism. What you say is, it's not important if the cross was a historical event. What matters is, what is the teaching behind it? See what I'm saying? What is the moral takeaway from a historical event? It doesn't matter if it happened or not. No, 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 no. If we do that, then we misunderstand what the Bible is. Um, I like what Michael Lawrence said. He put it very, very uh, simple for us to understand. He said, the history, of, the, the history of the Bible is authoritative for our lives. I like that. The, fa- the historical events of the Bible themselves carry authority, right? That these things happen, and we're going to see that. Um, Michael Lawrence says, that is what makes the Bible utterly unique. Uh, this is big, especially in light of liberalism. Liberals um, uh, make a, make their living on divorcing the, tr- the, the the spiritual truths, the spiritual teachings of the Bible from history. That's that's, that's right. So, uh, and this is uh, this is this has probably reached a climax in a, a liberal scholar by the name of Rudolf Bultmann, who said, "Who cares what actually happened in time, in real history, in time and space?" It's the parable behind the resurrection that matters. It's the analogy, in other words. It's the metaphor that you get from such a story. <laughs> right? No! <laughs> right? It actually took place, and that's why it's important. It took place, and what that tells us is that, um, is that, that, that history itself is authoritative, and that's what he's trying to say. Again, Michael Lawrence says, What the Bible does really is not just give us God's viewpoint. It allows us to walk with God through the course of human history. That way, we can come to believe and trust the words, the viewpoint, and the heart of this one who is leading history. The Bible enables us to see with new eyes. It enables us, as the Apostle Paul said, to see with a new heart. Uh, and so that is uh, getting back to this idea of the Bible as history um, and the, the, the idea of the story motif. Now, we have some more work to do. Um, we we want to go back to uh, what I call the encyclopedia, the encyclopedia of theology, right? Um, uh, encyclopedia. Abbreviate. Encyclopedia of the Bible. Okay, sorry, abbreviation. Uh, And remember we said that there are four branches of theology, right? There is the exegetical, right? There's the exegetical. There is the systematic. I want you guys to know this inside and out. There is the uh, practical, practical, and then there is the historical. Very good. Right? Now we've determined that biblical theology is part of exegetical <coughs> theology. From exegetical theology, we get biblical theology. That's where it comes from. So what is, what is exegetical theology and what is it concerned with? What is exegetical theology concerned with? 
explaining the script, but, the, but, but, but doesn't systematic theology explain the scriptures? Doesn't practical theology explain the scriptures? Okay. What, specifically, what does this portion of scripture say? Okay. It's more expositional. More expositional? Explain that. Going in from the text and getting the meaning out of it. Very good. Yeah, it helps to even ask the question, what does the word exegesis mean, right? It means to, the word exegesis in the Greek literally means to explain or to lead out. That's the literal meaning, to lead out, right? Which means you take the original text, and from the original you lead out what it actually means, right? You actually explain the original intent. And so when you are engaged in exegesis, you are concerned, okay, you are concerned, let's, let's, just, let's just look at exegetical. You are concerned with, Things like grammar, right? Uh, grammar. Uh, so when you're talking about grammar, you're talking about things like syntax. What is syntax? Anybody know? Syntax? Oh, I see that hand. Usage. <laughs> usage. Uh, what do you mean, usage? Um, uh, how, the, how the words are being used. Very good. The utilization of words, especially, specifically in relationship to one another. Right? That's what syntax is. How does the verb relate to the participle? How does the participle relate to the coordinating clause? That's what exegetes ask. Right? And so here you're talking about words right? and their meaning. So you're, you're trying to define, I mean, you're going down to the most minuscule um, part of the Bible, down to the very word, right? And so really the way that it works, if you're doing exegesis, just to kind of give us a, um, just to give us an explanation of what do you do in exegesis? Um, you can say that you, t- you go all the way from the paragraph to the sentence to the clause to the, uh, no, 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 almost got ahead of myself, to the phrase phrase level down to the words. What is a phrase? A phrase would be like in Christ. What kind of phrase is that? Landon? (laughs) Anybody? It's a prepositional phrase, right? So in is a preposition. I know I, I... it's so cruel of me to put people on the spot. I'm so sorry, brother. Yeah. I'm sorry, but, but, but that's what it is. It's, uh, it keeps you on your toes, right? Everyone's afraid? Everyone's, ter- Everyone's terrified, right? Good. I don't mean to do that to you. Okay, so, yeah, that's right. This is a prepositional phrase. In Christ is a prepositional phrase, right? So that's what, that's what, that's what exegetical... Theology is all about getting down to the very... It's just like, uh, I don't know, in high school, you guys went to high school, right? <laughs> Notice I don't raise my hand. <laughs> but you did, right? Sort of. I'm in your camp, right? Um, you did sentence outlining, right? You, you were taught to diagram sentences. That's basically what you're doing in exegesis. You're diagramming the sentence. You're asking what's the big idea, and then from there you're moving to smaller and smaller units of thought. That's what, that's what it is. But the, the important thing about exegetical theology is that, I'll leave that up there, is that exegetical theology is also concerned with the content of Scripture. 
What is the content of Scripture? That's what we're asking. Number two, we're also concerned with, on an exegetical level, you're also concerned with the study of introduction material. You ever heard that before? You know the easiest way, because you read uh, maybe a commentary on introduction, and it's so, I mean, depending on what commentary you get, it can be so technical, so overwhelming, right? I've always broke it down like this, real simple. If you're doing introduction, let's say you're going to ask the question about Galatians. Uh, Galatians, better get that one right. Okay. Um, Introduction material, which is part of exegesis, what is it asking Who was it being written to? Okay, so it deals with audience, author, theme, and intent both refer to what you could call argument. See that? A-A-A. I like to do stuff. Alliteration is big with me, right? Audience, author, argument. Boom. That's what you want to, and, and under audience, you're going to ask what the Germans used to call the Sitzenleben. You ever heard that term? What is the Sitzenleben? You should better know. I forgot. <laughs> the Sitzenleben is the old theological term that meant the setting, the situation, the circumstances, right? So in Galatia, what was going on? So... In terms of the audience, you want to find out some very important things about the audience. You want to find out um, uh, what is the spiritual, right, spiritual climate. What's going on in Galatia at that time? What are the prevalent ideas? What is the historical developments? Who, who is the emperor? What's going on with Rome at the time, right? Those kinds of things. What are they worshiping at that time, right? Uh, you're, you're also asking e- economics. Right, the economical makeup of the situation uh, is Paul writing to a poor society? Is he writing to a very affluent society? All those things have meaning for the situation, the culture, and what's going on. So you have socio-economic, spiritual. Um, I'm sure there's another one. I think I have it in here. Uh, spiritual, historical, sociological, and so so sociology, sociology is also important because you're asking questions of theology, because you're asking the questions of what is the makeup of that society? What are the predominant races of that society? All of that has huge importance when you're studying a book like Galatians. And if people, you know, people that really, really want to dive into the book, this is the stuff. You know, I get excited about introduction material. I'm just like, yes, I can't get enough of it. You know, I'll read several commentaries because I'm just fascinated by the world of the Bible. You know, so that's kind of getting into the contents of Scripture. And so all of this exegetical idea, all these exegetical things inform our biblical theology, right? Any questions, comments, statements? Yes, sir? You can also, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, hmm? pick out aspects of the historical, the practical, as you're doing this. In, in that context, because, you know, maybe Paul's perspective, you know, he's definitely a pastor or a shepherd. Yeah. What, how he was addressing him. Yeah. Author. Yeah. yeah. What's going on with Paul? Is he writing from prison? Yeah. In the history, what's happened in that society of, under Rome, where right. they're at. Yeah. So there's hints yeah. of it. But, Very good. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's amazing. I mean, you talk about the author, um, you know that this is important even from a literature perspective, right? A literary level, right? Paul and John write totally different. I don't know if you know that. They use different vocabulary, different style of Greek altogether, right? Like, Book of Hebrews, whoever wrote that, Book of John, okay, could not be more different if they tried in the Greek original. So whoever was writing those books, man, they, their literary minds were totally different. This is why in the doctrine of inspiration, you know, we, we have to be careful to always acknowledge the human element in inspiration, that God used man to write the Bible, but in, in using man to write the Bible, he does not bypass the individual's, uh, how do you say it? His, their style, their literary makeup, their, their mind, right? Uh, the way they would say things. Yeah, so in other words, the human doesn't become like a typewriter, right? It's not like God picks you up and, and, and just begins to write with you as like a pen. You mean that you're just an instrument. I mean, we, we do want to say a man is an instrument, but he uses man's personality his setting, his situation, and his literary style, and his mind. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, what a genius of a, of a mind. I mean, you just trace the argument of Romans, and you have to understand what Paul is writing. He understood this. Every chapter of Romans is not a vision. Oh, right? This is what God told me to write. No, Paul knows this theology. That's what makes it so amazing. Through his personal perspective. Through his personal perspective, his personality, his skill, his wealth of knowledge. That's why Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3, right? I think it's verse 16. He says that, you know, that some things that Paul writes are difficult to understand. <laughs> Even Peter's like, man, Paul. <laughs> you know, this is, yeah, it's like, break it down, brother. <laughs> So it's not surprising that uh, Peter writes at a very, uh, I guess we could say, more of a pastoral devotional level. He's not writing some long didactic argument like Romans. He's m much more practical. You know, he was a fisherman. Yeah. He wasn't a great literary scholar like Paul. You know, so. Uh, <laughs> Paul went to Crane Cambridge. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's good, Mike. I hope that's on audio. I guess I said. <laughs> That's right. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's move beyond this and let's get into our definition again of biblical theology. And you guys just tell me, stop me at any point, okay? Because I really want you to get this. I really want you to get this, okay? Um, uh, okay. Do you plan on teaching this class over again? Um, I don't know. Let me finish it first, and I'll tell you. <laughs> Let me finish it first. So the definition of biblical theology, that's really what we want to get to right here. So I'm working right now. I'm work. You see this? I came in here early for you guys to write this down, to write these guys down, okay? Uh, because I know I'm not good at writing, so I better get in there early to write it clearly, legibly. Right. Hey, brother, I just wanted to, to, you know, applaud you on your legible writing there. <laughs> sometimes, I think, sometimes I think you're writing Greek and you forget we're actually here. I was looking for Haley. I wanted to have her do it. She's an artist. I can write it real nice, you know. <laughs> Not in front of the class. Before the class, get, don't, get, you know, don't, don't get terrified on this. Um, okay, so 
these four elements here of biblical theology, we ask, what is biblical theology? What, how would we define it? What does it consist of? It consists of these four things in part. Okay, uh, this is, These are big. The display of biblical theology, what we can call, what we can call the progress of biblical theology, what we can call the historical unity of biblical theology, and what we can call the elements of biblical theology. So let's go... Let's go one by one, but let me tell you where I got this, okay? I got this from exegeting Gerhardus Voss's definition of biblical theology, which I'm going to give you now. This is the way he defines it. He says, biblical theology rightly defined is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic progress of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity that sentence you'll find in so many biblical theology textbooks because what Voss did in that one sentence is he just he just covered so much ground right biblical theology rightly defined is nothing else than the exhibition the display of the organic progress of supernatural revelation the progress of biblical theology in order to, in its historic continuity, historical unity, and its multiformity, the various elements. Okay, that makes sense. Right. So let's go one by one. The display of biblical theology taken from the word exhibition. This is so wonderful because what it means is that God means to display to us his story, right? I mean, real basic. You thought biblical theology was going to be hard? It's real easy. God, when, when, when Gerhardus Voss speaks of the exhibition, it means that God sovereignly has, has decided to display this to us in the stories of the Bible, right? Edmund Clowney. Another wonderful biblical theologian. He says this. The development of biblical theology is redemptive historical. The divisions of biblical theology are the historical periods of redemption marked by, here we go, creation, fall, the flood, the call of Abraham, the exodus, and the coming of Christ. These stories are God's way of putting his redemptive story on display, right? So it's like you just hammer it over and over and over and over again. You guys are going to be biblical theologians by the time you walk out of here because you're going to walk out and you're like, he won't stop talking about the redemptive story, you know, because that's really what it is. Um, and notice what he, what he articulates here. Creation, fall, flood, Abraham, exodus, and Christ. That's the way that he sort of summarizes what it is that God is exhibiting to us. What is he putting on display, right? They all have to do with that. Every movement of the Bible moves to that point, right? I mean, you just think of, uh, you just think of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, what God was setting forth in creation, what he was displaying to us in creation. We're going to get into this, by the way, um, uh, let me just, um, if you don't mind, let me just kind of remind you guys uh, where we're even going with this, right? 
I have a basic three-point approach to biblical theology that we're going to do. Number one, what is biblical theology? That's where you're at right now. Okay, point one. Roman numeral number two. The hermeneutics of biblical theology. We have to get into the hermeneutical aspect of biblical theology. What does the allegorical interpretation have to do with redemptive historical hermeneutics? How does how does the historical, grammatical, literal interpretation... How many of you guys have heard that before? The historic, grammatical, literal interpretation of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. right? We, I think we all probably are born and bred on that. Um, so we'll interact with that and with the redemptive historical approach to hermeneutics and define that. So we're going to deal with hermeneutics. Point number three, Roman numeral number three, right? Defining biblical theology, hermeneutics of biblical theology, and then what's Roman numeral number three? The biblical theology itself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to attack, we're going to approach what we could even call the approach to biblical theology. And the way we're going to do it, Lord willing is that we're going to take sections within books of the Bible. So just an example, Genesis is like the big one. We'll take Genesis, the book, and then within Genesis we're going to hit sections. Protology, Genesis 1 through one and 2 mainly, right? And 1 and 3 after the fall. Primeval history, right? The time after Adam and bef- and, and, and before the patriarchs. So all the way through the Noahic period. We're going to look at what what does that biblical theology look like? What is that telling us about God's story? We're going to look at the patriarchs, right? We're going to look at the Exodus. The Exodus, you guys, is so big. In the mind of the Jew, when you talked about the Exodus, you were referring to Old Testament redemption. The, the Exodus is so huge. Is it any wonder that the Bible uh, in the New Testament when it wants to talk about our redemption, time and again, the authors of the New Testament make an analogy to the Old Testament exodus. That God is gathering a people for himself, that he's delivering us out of our bondage, that he's taking us out of our slavery. All of this language, right? That God is sending us an exodus leader, Christ, a deliverer, Romans 11. I mean, so many Exodus ideas. Why? Because the authors of the New Testament knew the Old Testament Exodus was a, was, was, was a, a typological uh, picture of redemption and how it works. Right? So we're going to get into all that. So that's it. Three basic things. Easy enough, right? <laughs> yeah, but you're not mentioning all the subpoints that go under there. Yeah, that's right. So that's the fun. That's kind of the fun of it all. So that's what we're going to do as far as that. So again, the exhibition, the desire for God to display his supernatural revelation to us. Uh, let, me, let me tell you this. What this is, is God's desire to save a people for himself who will be devoted to serving him in a realm of righteousness and rest. That, that is really what God wants to display to us. Uh, so, for example, let's hit the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. What time is it? Yeah, Genesis chapter 3. Okay? Uh, this is, as you know, the most primitive promise of uh, the gospel in the Bible. And so, 
from the very beginning, we are given a promise of two things. And here it is, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, we understand that. There is Satan. There is Eve. Right? So we know the enmity is going to be between him and her. Okay, right? We understand. How? This is how. Between your seed, the serpent, and her seed, the woman's seed. You shall bruise him on the heel. Right? No, I'm sorry. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. So, 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 so right there and then, we are given this little primitive picture of what becomes what a lot of people refer to as seed theology. And seed theology is so incredibly vast in the Bible. When we say the word, the phrase, redemptive, historical, Right? When we say redemptive historical, what are we refer? What are we talking about? Because that sounds almost like a trendy word that biblical theologians use. No, no, no. It is an accurate word. It is an accurate phrase that tells us that something like Genesis three fifteen is 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 advanced throughout the history of the Bible, right? And then it encounters different stages of fulfillment, different stages of advancement. So, for example, turn to Genesis 12. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Okay. Genesis chapter 12, I believe we are supposed to see the same seed theology advanced in this, uh, in this promise. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we have a, if, if, if the original seed promise was indicative of God promising the woman a humanity, right? which we know that that's what it is now, right? a posterity, a people. Right? And then there's two peoples. There's the people of the, of the woman, right? the seed of the woman, and then there's the seed of the serpent. And so what is the Bible, uh, we can say the Bible is about is that these two conflicting humanities are found in conflict all throughout redemptive history down to this very day. Uh, it just boils down to those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, right? And these two humanities are found in conflict throughout all of redemptive history. And that's what you find. And so then you get to Genesis 12, right? Get to Genesis 12 and the understanding of how is the seed theology going to advance? It's going to advance patriarchally through Abraham. And, and, and how is that going to happen? <laughs> right? How is that going to happen? Right? Well, we know it's going to happen through the child of promise, which is who? Isaac. So, for example, if you go to Genesis uh, 18, I turn there. You have 
you have the same, and as you're turning there, I will turn to Galatians, right? Because that's, that's really, um, that's really the important part. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 is really, really, uh, let's see here, verse 16. I'm looking for Genesis. I'm in Galatians, but stay there. Gen Galatians chapter 16. Uh, to your seed, that is, that is Christ. To 16. Oh, I'm sorry. So go to uh, Genesis 17. Okay, yeah, Genesis 17. Right? Because there we are given the promise again to him. Yeah, there it is. Genesis 17. <clears throat> and beginning beginning in verse 1, he says, Now Abraham was 90 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between you and me, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So here we go again, this language of multiplying a humanity for him. He says, As for me, behold... My covenant is with you, and I will be the father of, a, uh, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. He says, "No, no longer shall your name be called Abram, and your name shall be, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations." So again, just another picture of how um, that is going to advance, and then ultimately it's going to advance. The verse I'm looking for is, escapes me right now. Galatians chapter 3 says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. So when God tells Abraham in chapter 17, I'm going to multiply your descendants, right? He's not making the promise to all the different descendants that Abraham has. According to Galatians, God is actually referring to one ultimate descendant which is Christ, which is Christ. Um, and I think it's in, uh, I can't find it at the moment. See if you guys can help me find that, that, um, that verse. I thought it was maybe 18. The promise passage? Yeah. What is it? 15? No, 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 no. When he actually gives the 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 descendant to your seed. What is that? Where is it? There we go. That's exactly right. There it is. Yeah. Verse seven uses the word descendants, but if you have a footnote there, right, to verse seven, the literal Hebrew word is seed in the singular. <laughs> So all the way back in this primitive promise, God had made a promise to Abraham, but more importantly, to his seed. But how did Abraham understand it? Surely Abraham understood it in terms of the multitude that God promised him. But the New Testament authors are telling us, no, this promise was ultimately made to one descendant. We could even see the ultimate descendant, which is Christ which is Christ. And that's what I mean by... Yes, sir? Maybe it would help Abraham understand that if he had seed theology based on Genesis 3.15 already, like expecting a seed that would 
he was able to interpret that. Right. Because he had seen the historical. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it amazing that God made these promises to Abraham before he was in a position to, to, to do anything on his own? Right? Uh, matter of fact, turn to Acts 7. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 7 makes the exact same point. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse, oh boy. Beginning in verse 5, right? This is talking about the glory of God coming to Abraham. In verse 5, it says, he gave him, watch this, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot on the ground, and yet... Even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So what is, what is Stephen saying there? What he's saying is there, even before Abraham was in a position to, to, to even see any form of fulfillment of the promise, <laughs> right? God had made this promise to him. And before, I take this almost to say like, even before Abraham could start scheming in his mind of how this is going to be... Does Abraham have a history of scheming? Yeah, he does, right? She is my sister, not my wife, <laughs> right? He is a schemer, right? So before he even had the capacity, before he stepped one foot in the promised land, before he had one child, he had this amazing promise hanging over him. In other words, it, it had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with God's, uh, the display of God's work in his life. And I mean, we could just, you could use this over and over and over. Uh, one more thing, in terms of the display of biblical theology, turn to Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll be in Ephesians for a couple verses, but Ephesians chapter 1, just in terms of God's desire to display His glory, we could say, uh, to us, His redemptive activity to us. Uh, we see that, for example, in uh, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 10. Uh, let's, let's do verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, watch this now, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things on in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. So, so what is that passage telling us right there? What is that passage saying about God's plan? All the historical coat hangers hang on that theme of redemption. The clothesline. That's what I was looking for. The clothesline, right? That's right. That's right. But it also, what he's saying is that all this is summed up in Christ. And what he's saying is, even the things in the heavens and the things of the earth, everything is going to be summarized or, what does it say? Summing it all up. That's an amazing phrase that just basically means he brings everything to a climax in Christ. So this shows us right here that from the very beginning, God's desire was to display his glory in Christ. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to put his master plan on display. Uh, maybe even a more precise passage. Turn to Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, 
Paul says, to me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Watch this. To bring to light. (laughs) Right? To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. That verse right there, what it's saying is that God is displaying the administration of the mystery, which is what? Basically, the administration of the mystery is something like, to make it real simple, something like the gospel in Christ. right? And this has been sort of hidden in the sense that the full disclosure did not come in ages past. Uh, oh, yes, the gospel's in the Old Testament, but the full display of it had not yet come until we arrive at Christ. And he says... Um, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. You see, God's desire to make his his mysteries, his wisdom known. Right? This is this is what's pushing redemption forward. This is what's this is what's at work in supernatural revelation as the Bible's unfolding. This is what God is doing as He wants to unfold more and more and more and display more of His wisdom. To us, we're only on point number one. <laughs> yeah, Jesus understood this in John chapter seventeen, verses one through five. John chapter seventeen, he knew that he had come to execute the plan that God had. And he says, "Now I'm ready to go back to you, Father." With the glory that I had with you before the world was, having accomplished the work. He said, I glorified you. I made you known. That's what he said. I glorified. I made you known. And now he says, now glorify me. Now exalt me. Bring me back to a pre, uh, you know, uh, his pre-incarnate glory. Only he would come back into that fully incarnate. You know, uh, which is just an amazing thing. Do we have time? No, we don't. We're going to go point number one next week. Hopefully, Water's Edge doesn't erase all this so I don't have to write it again. Right? But these are the guys that if you guys want... G.K. Beale, um, G.K. Beale has a small little book. It's called Eden to the Ends of the Earth. And it's a small book. It's manageable. You guys can read it in a couple weeks and uh, uh, so that you can just see at least one theme. So let me finish up quickly just by talking about these guys, okay? Let me, let me talk about these guys and then why I have them up here just to remind us. Okay? Gerhardus Voss is old school. You're talking about 1800s. And he's known essentially as the modern, modern, but the, the, basically the father of biblical theology. Right? That's why he's important. And the reason why Voss is important is the way that he approached biblical theology is not necessarily because of themes, right? uh, but periods, what, what he called epics of revelation. So for Voss, very important that, that he sees revelation enfolded this much, in the pre-redemptive epic of Adam. What, do we, what does he mean by pre-redemptive? Prior to the need for redemption. So before the fall, right? What was the nature of supernatural revelation before the fall? It's fascinating because you start getting into like, why did God reveal what he revealed in the pre-redemptive period of time that he gave us? Those couple of chapters, right? 
And then he goes, then he talks about the post-lapsarian period. After the fall, what is the nature of that revelation? And then, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? G.K. Beale is probably the most famous biblical theologian right now, I, I would say, in terms of popularity. He has written, written a massive thousand-page book where he basically does a biblical theology of the Old and the New Testament. And he shows how the old is unfolding in the new. And his big idea, G.K. Beale has a big idea, okay? And what he's saying when we talk about the story of Scripture, what he's saying is that the story <laughs> that drives the whole Bible is the, the new creation. That God is taking us from creation to new creation. And everything along the path Right is sort of a, an advancement of that. And he says that's why the tabernacle was built like the new creation. The temple was built like a new creation. Solomon built his his uh, the courts and everything that he built. He built it. He built it like Eden, mm-hmm. because he, there was creation ideas um, inside the tabernacle. You had all these Edenic themes. You had a tree of life that was in there, right? All of these things, and he just shows over and over and over throughout all the, the literature of the Old Testament, how the new creation is constantly being used as the background for everything that happens. When they come into the land of promise, it's like a new creation, a new humanity, a new land, a new creation, right? And then the new creation, it advances, it, it reaches a, a climax when Christ arrives. When Christ arrives, it's as if the new creation has broken in to this creation, and guess what? When you got saved, what does God call you? A new, literally, the, the Greek, literally, new creation. So you are kind of like a foreshadowing of Revelation 21. By your salvation, you are echoing what Revelation 21 is all about. That you are a holy people in a holy realm, a place of righteousness and rest with God. And right now, that is all for us. That's all in Christ. But heaven is precisely that. It is a realm of holiness with a holy people in a holy covenant bond where we experience rest from our enemies in righteousness. That's why Canaan, the promised land, is called heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12. <laughs> because that's what it was supposed to symbolize. So anyway, I mean, I could talk about this all day. Amen. I have more talking to do, though. I better, I better save it. All right, let's go to worship, guys.